Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. We got a few around here. Where do you go? How about the North Campus? Anybody here from North Campus? Give me a shout out. All right, great, great to have all of you here today, and uh, we're glad you made it and survived the storm, and it's true, God is good. God is good all the time, even in the midst of the storm, God is still good, and he's in control, and he's in charge. Take your Bibles out and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1. We're talking about how to change the world, how we're changing our world, how we're going to change our world, and and what that looks like all this month. Uh, And let me ask you a question Uh, I don't have mine with me. How many own an iPhone? Let me see your hand. All over the place. How how about anybody own an iPad? We got any iPad? Okay, we got the old iPads going. How about a Mac computer or an Apple computer? Okay, so, so we've got all that going on around here. There was a time when Apple was not the most attractive company in America. It was not very popular. It was the second rate uh, in the self, it wasn't even the cell phone business back then, second-rate computer company. It wasn't the big, innovative, visionary giant it is today. But something happened. In 1983, Steve Jobs met with the president of Pepsi, a man by the name of John Scully. He was looking for someone with the expertise to make the Apple brand a household name, a, a strong, powerful company in America today. And they had long discussions going on over time, and time and time again, John Skelly said, no, I'm happy where I'm at, I'm not leaving, I like Pepsi, I've got money, we're doing fine, and he was the president and CEO of the Pepsi Corporation. And finally, Steve Jobs looks at him and says, John, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? Isn't that a great line? Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? Listen, I believe that every one of us in the house today have the potential to be world changers. You might not change all the nations around you, but the way we change the world is one person at a time. And there's somebody around you, somebody you work with, someone in your neighborhood, someone, a family member, someone close, that you can begin to change their world. And as the church rises up and we change people one at a time, lives are changed, and then our world around us all begins to change. We want that chance. Don't we want to make a difference? Don't we want to make an impact? The question is, where do we start? How do we begin? We're talking about how to change the world. And when we use a title like that for the sermon series, it sounds so big and it sounds so vast. And we begin to think, where do I even begin or how do I start to make a difference? And the trouble is, if you don't know where to start, if you don't know where to begin, you will get frustrated. Apathy will set in. And pretty soon you'll be relegated to the sidelines and you'll be doing nothing and dissatisfied with your life. But I believe God has a plan and purpose for every single one of us. He wants to use you. He's designed us to be world changers. All of us. The Bible says God has given you gifts. He's given you talents. He's given you resources. He's given you abilities. He's given you relationships all to see you begin to change the world around you. 
So how do we do that? How do we make it happen? We're going to look at the Old Testament. We're looking at a man by the name of Nehemiah, someone who may not be as famous as some of the Bible heroes who are out there, but was an incredible world changer for God. So let's stand together as we look at God's word. Nehemiah chapter (coughs) 1, excuse me, and verses 1 through 4 this morning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we come to you today. We pray, God, that you will open our hearts this morning. I pray, God, that as we look around at our world, that the walls are falling down and we see the condition American is and we see the condition our neighbors are in and we see the condition our family member is in, Lord, and they're hurting and they're broken and their their walls are in disarray. God, I just pray that out of this congregation today, you will raise up Nehemiahs, you will raise up world changers, men and women who will begin to make a difference right where we live, right where we've placed us. Stir us with your word today. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Turn to someone, let them know if you got your power on or not, and then you may be seated. You might know if someone has their electricity on or not, if they have a mouciferous odor emanating about them, it probably means their power's not on, but cut them some slack this morning, even though they may have a little bit of BO going on. Uh, No, not in here. Why why would Nehemiah inquire about a struggling remnant of people 800 miles away from where he is at currently in the land of Babylon or at this time in the land of Persia? I mean, after all, he could have said, you know, it's not my fault, God. They're in captivity. You know, it was, it was 150 years earlier that the Babylonians come in and they sweep through. They set siege to Jerusalem. They attack and ransack this city. They, they destroy the city. They take the very best and brightest away into captivity. And so they march them off. Thus, you get Daniel and some of those kind of books. He's one of the, went in the first group into captivity. And so they come in and they leave the poor and the infirmed and the elderly to take care of the city of Jerusalem. And it was all because of their sins. God is very clear the judgment that is going to fall upon Judah is because of their sins and their idolatry and their wickedness. And after all, Nehemiah could have said, you know, I wasn't even alive then. It's not my fault, God. Why why go back to Jerusalem? Why care about what's going on there? I had no part in bringing any of that about. And then... The government changes hands. 
Belteshazzar, you remember in Daniel chapter 5, he sees the writing on the wall that judgment is going to come and Cyrus comes in and the Persian Empire comes in and the Babylonians are destroyed by the Persian Empire. So now he is under a new regime. Only this new regime is a little bit more sympathetic to what's going on in Jerusalem. God moves upon a pagan king, a man by the name of Cyrus, and under Cyrus's rule, he allows Israel to begin to go back. And after 70 years of captivity, they begin to move back the land. Three different movements of people will go back and reestablish Jerusalem. The first group goes back and they're going to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel is going to be the government governor of that area and and in 15 years they're going to rebuild the whole temple area. Ezra is going to come back shortly after that. He's going to read the law. He's going to teach the people about the law. There's going to be somewhat of a spiritual revival going on in Jerusalem but they're still in a mess because their walls are all torn down. They are subject to be attacked by their enemies. Morale's low. Can you imagine waking up every day and there's just rubble all around the city? And the Bible says when Nehemiah hears the news that the walls are still crumbled to the ground, he is moved with compassion. And he begins to pray and he begins to cry out and he begins to weep for the people and he gets such a burden and he fasts and he waits before God because the walls are ruined and the city is a mess. And Nehemiah has has got this burning passion in his heart that he's got to do something. Now, Nehemiah at this time has the office of the cupbearer. He is the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes by this time. Nehemiah has been educated himself in the city of Susa, so he's a very smart man, a very learned man, and his career is on a roll. He is doing great in Persia. He's well-respected. He's an educated man. He's serving directly as a cupbearer to the king. Now, what did a cupbearer do? It was more than just carry the cup and bring it to the king. Kings in this day and age lived under this kind of uh, paranoia that any time they could be assassinated or knocked off. They were all, and so many times these kings would live their lives in the palace in somewhat of a seclusion. And so they would have a cupbearer who would sample the wines and sample the food before it was taken into the king for him to eat, just to make sure they would not be poisoned. And so he is kind of like a secret security, secret service agent who's attached to the king himself. Very, very high-ranking position. He would also stand out of his quarters at night. He would guard the doors to make sure no one would come in the middle of the night and kill him, stab him, do whatever. And so he is a very, very important person in the palace of the king. And he has to be a man of discretion. He has to be able to keep secrets. And so you have in Nehemiah kind of a combination of a secret service agent and a press secretary all rolled up in one. Might be like a kind of a Jack Bauer, you know, just defending the president behind the scenes. Uh, nobody knows what's going on. And if, if you've watched 24, you know what I'm talking about. And he lives in splendor. And he's in the king's palace. He's got the very best and finest foods that could be offered. He has a tremendous benefit package. And all this is going on. And yet when Nehemiah gets this report about Jerusalem lying in ruins, he is greatly disturbed. Why? Because this is his homeland. He had never once set foot in Jerusalem. But he weeps for his people and he weeps for his homeland and he cries out for the cities. 
You remember where you were when 9-11 fell and the, and the towers came down and how we felt and the passion we felt of what was going on and we were glued to our television sets and many thought, I wish I could do something. I wish I could be there. I, I wish I could help out. I wish there was something I could do. Well, you might get a little sense of kind of what Nehemiah was feeling as he hears the reports. The walls are down. They're going to get overrun by their enemies. The city's a wreck. And he's moved. He has passion. I want to tell you the very first thing that you must keep in mind is if you are really going to be a world changer and you're going to change the world all around you, it starts out with having a burning passion and desire to do something. If you don't feel it, nothing will happen. If it's same old, same old, it's about me and my family and just getting by, nothing will ever happen. But once you become here the heart of God and you get the passion of God, you will want to act and you will want to do something. It all begins with having a passion. You've got to be passionate. The greatest world-changing movements in history were birthed with people with passion. They had a passion. They felt it strongly. People just like us. But they felt something. What are you passionate about? What stirs your soul? What, what motivates you? What moves you? What drives you? What causes you to cry? What causes you to weep? What, causes you, what hurts you and pains you when you see something going on around you? What is it that drives you? You see, your passion is that powerful engine that starts us and motivates us to become world changers. Without passion, you will change nobody around you. When you think about Nehemiah, he had it all. But Nehemiah never lost touch with God, and he never lost touch with the people of God. Nehemiah's security and values were God and the people of God. It wasn't his money. It wasn't his possession. It wasn't his comfortability. It wasn't his, his education, it wasn't his career, it was not his possessions, but it was his relationship to God. And that relationship to God moved him. And I want to propose to you, as important as your home is today, Matthew could have come and blown that away. And thank God, I didn't know any homes going down here. We need to keep praying for the people in Haiti. They have shacks. They've got nothing there. They've got little tin roofs over their head and a lot of loss of life. But in America, we are a blessed people. I want to tell you that. We've got homes and houses and security, and, and most of our homes, I'm sure, were left pretty intact unless a tree might have come over and took out a corner of your house. But I will tell you, even with all that, our house cannot be our passion. Our jobs cannot be a passion. Our checking account can't be our passion. It has got to be God, what moves your heart, and the thing that moves God ought to move us. God, I need to hear your passion and your heartbeat. And so Nehemiah walks away from it all. He vacates his plush office, turns in the key to his camel, turns in his Persian Express platinum card for a pile of rubble in a city 800 miles away. You see, the second thing you've got to understand is if we're going to be world changers, not just enough to only have passion, but that passion should motivate us to action. It should drive us to say, what am I going to do about it? Let's pick up the story. Turn to chapter 2 if you would. Look if you would at verse number 2. 
And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed with fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. No, notice you can just take those momentary prayers. You ever get in a bind and, and, and listen, just, just call out a prayer to God. He just takes this momentary mental prayer. God, you better help me now. I'm right in the middle of this. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his eyes, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about that burden and that passion that God has laid upon your heart? He has a passion for his people. For Nehemiah, it meant traveling 800 miles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. He would take a contingent of people with him. He would take resources with him. They would travel that long, arduous journey, probably about three months to take to get from where he was in Babylon back to Jerusalem, all with the idea of rebuilding the walls. But he had to do something. Once he heard the report, once he knew what was going on, he was a steward of that knowledge, and so he had to act on what he received. It wasn't enough just to sit there and keep sampling the wine that was coming into the king's palace. He had to do something. God had Nehemiah at the right place at the right time. Now let me share with something with you this morning. Every one of you, wherever you're at, have been strategically placed there by God. It's not an accident you work where you work. It's not an accident you go to school where you go to school at. God, it's not an accident you live in a neighborhood that you live in. God has you there for a plan and for a purpose at the right time, at the right place. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 8. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it has pleased him. God has placed you at faith assembly of God. He has you for in here for such a time and such an hour as this. You're strategically placed to this body, whether it be at our North Campus, our Goose Creek Campus, our Somerville Campus, wherever it might be, for such a time as this. It's not accidental. There's no accidents with God. You're not at faith by accident. You are a part of God's plan right here to build up the body of Christ. In other words, he says, I gave gifts so you can build one another up and help each other grow and help each other make it. That's why we're here. In America, the walls of our families are being destroyed. They are crumbled. They are in disrepair. Families are being tore up. Homes are being shattered. Our communities are a wreck. We need Nehemiahs who will leave their comfort zone to be used by God to rebuild the crumbling walls in America today. You are strategically placed by God at your work. Now, men, let me tell you something. I want to clue you in. You are not at work primarily to earn a living. Just to remind you, you're not there to earn a living. 
Now, just so you know, God will use that to provide for you. He gave you the mind and the strength to do the job you are doing right now, but you are always at work for a greater purpose, and the greater purpose is to build up the kingdom of God. So you're at work to be a witness. As a side benefit, he gives you a paycheck. And what I want to see happen is that Faith Assembly of God sees ourselves as an army that when you leave this place, you go out and you infiltrate wherever you're at and you share about Jesus and you talk about the Lord and you're there to pray with people and you're there to help people and you, you're, you're serving God and his kingdom. That's the highest purpose for every single one of us. Do you notice when people are work or absent or upset? Are your eyes open? Do you see what's going on around you when someone's hurting or crying or sad or downcast? Cyrus had, uh, Artaxerxes had enough on on the ball to say, you know, something's upset with you. I see something's going wrong. Tell me what's happening in your life. Do you pay attention when, you know, we're creatures of habit, and so we all come into church every Sunday, and you guys sit pretty much in the same places, maybe off today because there's a lot of room in here. But typically, you're in the same area every day. Do you, do you notice when somebody on the, in the seat around you, in the area around you where you're sitting, is quick coming to church? Do you even know their name, who you're sitting next to? Do you know who's in the row in front of you? Do you know who's in the row behind you? Do you know them by name and what's going on in their life? Are you observant enough? Are you watching and are you looking, hey, this person hasn't been in church for two or three weeks. I better give them a call and See what's going on in their life and see where they're at and make sure they're okay and make sure they're doing well. Are you watching? Are you looking? Do you observe the sorrow and joys even in your own family? You notice when your teenagers kind of get distant and there's this wall there and it starts to go up in the home and and, and the door gets shut more quickly and they kind of retire to their own area and they seem to be pulling away from your leadership and direction and guidance. Do you see that happen? Do you see the men, do you see the sadness in your wife's eyes sometimes? Are you watching? Ladies, do you see the deep sighs and frustrations of your own husband? Nehemiah was a long way from Jerusalem. He had every reason to say, out of sight, out of mind. I just, it's none of my business. It's none of my concern. It's too far off. He could have said, it's not my problem. It's their own fault. They got in the mess they're in. Or, or he may have said, what we often say is, someone else will do it. We're always kind of waiting for someone else to step up, take the initiative. They'll take care of it. That home group will do it. This group of people will take care of it. They're already in position. They got maybe more resources, more talents, more abilities than I got. I'll let someone else do it. But the problem is there's a lot of people out there saying someone else will do it and nothing gets done. We in the church need to step up and say, God, what do you want me to do? Why do you have me where I'm at and how can I help? correct the situation? How can I help rebuild the walls? You see, there's a deception that the enemy plays in our mind big time, and it goes something like this. I'm really not good enough. And the devil's there to pound us in our brain. I'm no good, and I'm not good enough, and God really can't use me, and I'm not that talented. But to be a world changer, you don't have to be the best or even good enough, but you've got to care. And to be a real world changer, you've got to care the most. Because it's ordinary people like Nehemiah, it's ordinary people like you and I that begin to change our world. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2, look at verse 7. 
He has a couple of requests for King Artaxerxes. And I want you to see how he followed through on his action plan. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters from the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have letters to Asaph, keeper of the king's force, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates and the citadels by the temple of the city wall and for the residence that I occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Now he has two requests for the king. And they are simply this, send me, request number one, let me go back, let me do what I can, and number two, give me the resources, right? I need safe passage to get there, and I need all the resources I can get to begin to rebuild this wall. First of all, he wants the king's authority. Listen to me. He wants the king's authority so he can go get his passport and go and travel across a journey without being attacked. And number two, he wants the king's resources. Now, I've got some great news for you today. Remember when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two? He said, I want you to go Two by two, I want you to go into the cities. I want you to to help the people. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to heal the sick. And I want you to cast out demons. And the disciples are looking at him. He says, and here's what you're going to do. You're all going to do it in the name of Jesus. Now, we are emissaries of the king. So everything I do, I now have his authority. I have his passport. I'm an ambassador for him. I'm out in his authority. And so when I move out in the community, when you move out in the community, we do it under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? You don't have to be good enough. God is good enough for you. He gives you all power, all might, all authority. And what did he tell his disciples when he sent them out two by two? He says, don't take purse and don't take money and don't take provisions. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. And when you go to the house, say, peace be unto you. If they receive you, you go in. They'll fix your food. They'll take care of you. They'll send you on your way. I am your resource. So when you think, I'm not good enough, and I can't do it, and I don't have enough, I know a heavenly Father who is strong enough, who is good enough, who is mighty enough, who has all the resources you'll ever need. Turn to Matthew 28. That was when he sent his disciples out two by two. The assignment is still the same for us today. He's he's ascending, and he gives them this final uh, word And and we call it the Great Commission, and this is kind of what our whole month is built around, this Great Commission. We heard about sending people to be a world changer. But look look at the authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to reserve everything I've commanded you. And look at this last phrase. And surely I am with you always. You've got my authority. I'm sending you out. I'll give you all you need to get the job done to the very end of the age. We have his authority and his power and his presence to change the world, to get the job done. 
And I want to give you a fair warning today, and I've got to make a full disclosure this morning. If I just stop right there, you would think, man, this is a breeze. Anybody can do this. I will tell you, as soon as you start to move out for God and act upon your passion, you will face resistance. The enemy's going to fight you every step of the way because he's trying to thwart kingdom purposes. And so whatever we begin to do for the kingdom of God, you can count on opposition from the enemy. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Look, if you would, at verse number 1. You're going to begin to see what happens to Nehemiah. And the whole rest of the book unfolds. Nehemiah is an incredible little book. It's going to talk to how they overcame great obstacles and they got a massive amount of work done because they worked together and they had unity. And he's a great leader. And if you want to learn about leadership, study the book of Nehemiah. But let me give you the first four verses of chapter 6. When word came to Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sambal and Geshem sent this message to me, come and let's meet together at one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Now the last thing Israel's enemies want to happen is to see Jerusalem become strong again. It was to their advantage for Jerusalem to remain weak, to have the walls broken down all around the city. They didn't want a strong, powerful Jerusalem ruling and reigning in the area of Judea. They want, so they wanted to remain in power. They, they don't want anybody taking their place. They want to be the top dogs in that area, in that region. So the, they do everything they can to stop the rebuilding project, the construction project, even going back to King Artaxerxes. And so what they're going to do is you're going to say, you know what, we're going to send a letter back to Artaxerxes, and we're going to foil their plans, uh, and we're going to uh, try to get them to stop the work that's going on. The closer you get to completing the work for God, the more intense the enemy will come against you. As you move out, things start to happen. Warfare will begin to come. Spiritual, demonic attack and warfare will come against you. You can count on it. And and the enemy's tactics vary. I want to give you two of them this morning from this passage right here. And these are very subtle attacks of Satan. Jot these down. Number one is compromise. He attacks through compromise. Look, in verse number two, he says, Come and let us meet together. The first attack of Sambalat, Gershom, and the other enemies of Israel was, Let's have a meeting. Let's party together. Let's get together. Let's, let's talk this thing out. Let's settle our differences. Let's forget the past. Let's just kind of let bygones be bygones. Uh, let's bury our differences. Let's just come together and meet and talk about this thing. Now, this is a very tempting offer because by this time the Jews are tired. They're weary. They've been working on the walls. They're hungry. They, they, they're seeing very little progress. They still look all around. There's rubble all around them. It would have been very easy to stop. Now, let's have a big powwow on the plains of Ono. Okay? The enemy reasons in their mind, if we can't beat them, let's join them. And that's the way he works with us. 
But once you begin to compromise truth and righteousness for convenience and acceptance, the enemy gets a foothold in your life. You say, that's good. I'm going to say that one more time. I want you to hear it. Once, you be, once we begin to compromise truth and righteousness for convenience and acceptance, the enemy gets a foothold. And what he does is he begins to destroy you from within. It has already begun. Four times the enemies of Israel presented a plan for a meeting. They wanted to lure him off the wall so that they could assassinate him. Now make no mistake about it. On the surface it seemed like a friendly powwow, but on the inside they had a mind to kill Nehemiah. And if they shut down the leader, they'll shut down the job. The compromise may have seemed small and harmless at the time, but I will tell you, in the end, compromise will kill you. Let me tell you how it works. Let me tell you what the deceiver says. Hey, a little alcohol won't hurt. Start drinking a little bit on the side. It won't bother anybody at all. It's it's okay. Just kind of keep it to yourself. A little pot won't kill you. A little toke won't hurt at all. A little porn will be just okay. It's just me and my own mind. It's kind of a, 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 a crimeless kind of a crime. No one else is involved except my brain. It'll be okay. A little more anger, a little more greed, a little more stuff, whatever it is. But like a cancer, it begins to grow and spread in your life. Can't Compromise starts very, very small, but it starts to take over every part of your life. And that cancerous cell grows and develops and spreads, and it eventually it will kill your spiritual life. Just a little bit won't hurt. That's how it always starts. How Satan always begins. But it will eventually choke out your spiritual life. He will try to get you to compromise. But the second thing the enemy tries to do, and this comes out very clearly in the story also as well, and and that is he will try to discredit you. He will talk about you and gossip about you and say things about you. He'll use other people to do that naturally, but he will run you down completely. He'll just try to destroy your reputation. Let's pick it up with verse number five there. If you have, I don't know if it's, these are all on the screen or not, but if you have your Bibles, you might want to follow along with me. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his, his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you, the Jews, are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Therefore you're, moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you to Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, now this report will get back to the king, so come and let us confer together." Now, here's what he, when they, when they always sent a letter, it was always tied, it was a papyrus letter that would take and wrap a string around it. When they would join the letter together, they would take a wax seal or some kind of clay seal and they would put on the letter to make sure no one would tamper it. They would put their insignia on it and they would send it to wherever it was going by Pony Express, okay? The Bible is very clear to say this was an unsealed letter. In other words, Geshem and Sambalat are going to send a letter back to the king that's unsealed. Why? Because they know human nature. Everybody along the way is going to read that letter. It's like getting on Facebook. Right? You see all the junk that goes out on that thing? 
the shaming that goes on, the put-downs, the criticism, all that happens. It's just like, and, and, and there's something, the enemy knows psychologically that people are always quick to believe the worst. So you throw it out there, true or not, and there's something about human nature that we want to believe the worst about somebody else. And then not only are we wanting to hear it for ourselves, because somehow if someone else is brought down, it makes me feel a little bit better. Because I have been involved in that. I haven't done that. I'm way better than him. But not only do we want to hear it for ourselves, but there's a natural tendency to want to pass it on. Tell just one person who tells just one other person who tells just one other person, and pretty soon everybody knows someone else's junk. Charles Swindoll makes this quotation. I want you to hear it. It's pretty good. I am personally convinced convinced that the number one enemy of Christian unity is the tongue. It's not drink, it's not drugs, not poor homes, not inflation, not the TV, not even a bad church program, it's the tongue. It is impossible for a leader or any person for that matter with a sensitive spirit not to be hurt by a rumor. In every organization there are what I call gossip mongers. And they sit like vultures, and their wings are here, their beaks are there, they're looking for an opportunity to pounce. And then they feed and devour the carcass that is down there. And they eat all the flesh and all the junk out of that carcass, and they just take it all inside of them. But something happens, that bird regurgitates that and spits it back up later. And this is kind of the way gossip is. Gossip will destroy a church. It will destroy an organization. It will destroy families. It will divide them apart. It will destroy neighbors. And we feast on that and we eat that and then we spit it back up for all to hear. And it is all a tactic of Satan to divide the unity of the body of Christ. But I want you to keep reading here. Look at what Nehemiah, look at how he responds to this gossip about him. Two things they say are going to happen. One, the Jews are going to revolt. Number two, Nehemiah, you want to be king. Both of those were totally untrue. He says in verse number eight, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making this up out of your head. In other words, they're false illusions. They were all trying to frighten us into thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. And it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. God, no matter what they say, no matter how they try to stop me, God, strengthen my hand. He denies the report. He goes back to work. Now listen to me. Nehemiah knew he could stand on his character. Warren Wearsby makes this statement. If we take care of our character, we can trust God to take care of our reputation. That's really good. Let me say it one more time. If we take care of our character, we can trust God to take care of our reputation. The enemy will do whatever he can to get us to quit. So what is my lesson simply in this last and third observation is never, ever, ever quit. Never, ever give up. Never come off that wall. When God's birthed a passion in your heart and life, when God has given you an action plan to carry out, don't stop. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't surrender. 
Don't give up. Finish strong so lives can ultimately be changed. Nehemiah doesn't quit. His passion motivates him. He finishes the mission God gave him. And by the time you get to Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse number 1, it says the walls of Jerusalem are all rebuilt. And another page says in 52 days, they all worked on that wall in front of them. They all did their assignment. They all joined together. In 52 days, the walls are rebuilt, and then the gates are all set and put in place. And, and now Jerusalem is once again safe and secure. And by the end of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, because of that, there's also another sweeping spiritual revival that occurs in Jerusalem. And lives are being changed because they all came together. They completed the task and did what God asked them to do. All because one cupbearer has a passion. He leaves the emperor's palace. His heart broke for his homeland. And God would use his passion to change thousands of people in Jerusalem. I'm going to ask our musicians to prepare to come if they would. If you want to be a world changer, discover your passion. Act on that compassion passion. In other words, and you may need to hear from God. God, what are you trying to tell me? What are you saying to me? And it may call, just like Nehemiah, he fasted and he prayed. You need to get the heart of God, and you may need to fast and pray. And finally, never, ever, ever quit. And the result will be changed lives. And you are a world changer. And you change the people around you. Now, let me ask you some hypothetical questions, and then we're going to close this up. What if Nehemiah just stayed in Persia? What if he just said it's none of my business? What if he said it's too hard, there's too many obstacles to overcome? Israel would have been further decimated, totally overrun by their enemies. And so let me ask you the question, what if you waste your talents and you waste your God-given abilities, and you waste your resources, and you don't act on the passion that God has birthed inside of your heart? Here's what's going to happen for you. Lives around you will go unchanged they may never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may never see your love. They may never, never be drawn to know the same Lord that you know and serve. And they could be lost for all eternity. And homes will continue to tr- crumble. And teenagers will still get messed up. Schools are still being a wreck. And nothing begins to change. And we ourselves will begin to shrink into a level of, of meaningless mediocrity. Because we're more content just to come and sit and fill up a pew, go home at night and watch our TV show, and live same old, same old, same old life. I want to challenge you to go beyond that. I want to challenge you to be a real world changer, to say, God, I can make a difference. God can use me and use you wherever you're at. So I want to ask you a question. Do you really want to change your world? Don't be like the guy who took his talent and buried it in the ground. Be like the ones who multiplied it and used it and invested in the kingdom of God. God will say, well done, well done. You did an awesome job. Good and faithful servant of the Lord. Now, let me just throw you a challenge right now. This is Love Week. This sermon has just beautifully fed us right into what Love Week is really all about. It's one week out of the year where we as a church say we are going to make a concerted effort, a joint effort to change our neighborhoods and communities 
and do acts of loving kindness throughout the week. If you're in a life group, your life group's already been talking about that and already been discussing it. If you're one of one of our other campuses, the campuses have already been talking about it and discussing it and setting up their strategies about how we're going to impact our world this week and what we're going to do. Now, no one knew when we set this up on our calendar seven, eight weeks ago, two or three months ago, we talked about the upcoming area we felt God leading our church to move into. Nobody knew Matthew was going to be blowing through. But Matthew came. He came and he went, and I'm glad he's gone. Amen. But behind him, he left a lot of trees down on the ground. He left a lot of people without power and ice and food and things like that, and he just kind of moved on out of here. I think it's, it's, it's fortuitous that God has allowed this time for us to have love week. And you're going to have homes and neighbors around you that need cleanup. They need help. They need someone to take a meal by to them, someone to love on them. So here's what I'm asking this congregation to do. First of all, I, I, had a home, I have a life group in my own house. I, I lead a life group. I believe in groups, and I have a group, and I, I direct that. And so my group will be taking some homes. We're going to take our, I got a chainsaw. It's coming in. I got it coming today. Someone's bringing it to me. They're going to let me use it. And I'm going to, I'm going to go in and get this thing out. I'm going to chop some trees down. I'm going to clear some yards out. Um, Our ladies in our group are going to take a nice meal over to that house when we go work there at night. So we're going to probably pick a home, maybe one or two, and we're going to go and we're just going to just cut some trees down, clean up some yards. If we can repair a roof or do something like that, we'll do that. I don't know how good my team is at my home, but we'll find out. God will make a way, and the ladies will take a meal in, and they'll help with the cleanup effort, and that's kind of what our group's going to set their focus on. I need you guys to do a couple of things. First of all, if you are here, and you've got a tree in your yard, and you're, you are a lady you are a single mom, you are a, a widow, widower, you're by yourself, or you're elderly, or you have no way to handle that tree, I want you to, on your way out, let Maxine know, this is my address, this is my phone number, uh, we need help. In this church, this body's going to rise up together this week, and we're going to have groups going out all over the place. We'll assign groups that will go help clean up your yard, they'll help get that process started and going, and we will do all we can because this is the family of God. And we need each other. We're going to take care of each other. Second, if you've got a neighbor that's in the, that, that fits that description, elderly, uh, single mother, single lady, uh, and, and they need help, someone's infirmed in the house, anything's going on like that, and they, need, they can't do it themselves, let the church office know who they are. We'll just come and just say, hey, we just want to love you a little bit tonight, and we're going to help you clear this yard out. We're going to help you take care of it. We're going to do what we can to get this place back in order. Some of the groups have already taken other projects on. You're going to minister to school, boys ranch. You're going to go somewhere else, do something else, and your group's already lined that up, and you're well prepared in advance. But there's going to be plenty of deeds, I believe, that will come through this church office And when we rally together and join our hearts together, Nehemiah, they rebuilt the whole wall in 52 days. I don't think it's going to take, I think in seven days we can clean up this area. I don't know, but I think we can do it if we all get together, take a project, work, live, give, and minister. And then let me just throw this out here. There are so many ministries at Faith Assembly of God where we need workers, We're going to be launching new campuses next year. We're going to be adding new services in the coming years. And we need, we need, I need more uh, uh, children's workers. I need more youth workers. I need more home group leaders. I need more 
prison workers. I need more nursing home ministers. We're gonna, this is a church that is mobilizing people to be involved in ministry. And so we believe that God has a place for every single person to serve in a ministry somewhere at Faith Assembly of God. Maybe it's a greeter or an usher. Maybe it's working in the Welcome Center. Maybe it's doing something else around here in the body of Christ. But, but you're needed in the body of Christ right here. Everybody has a gift and a talent. We put those together. All the needs are met. If we're going to keep launching campuses at the rate we want to at least every other year, we're going to have crews and teams ready to go in and, 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 and lead those services and set up the campuses and reach the lost in those areas. Discover your passion. Do something about it. Finish strong. Finish strong. I, I, I'm probably two-thirds of my life is gone. I've got, got a third left. I, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know how God's going to let me stay on the earth. I've probably got a third of my life left. I'm on the back half of my life. I'm on the downhill. And, and my cry every day is, God, I, I don't know how many more years you're going to have me here, but I want those years to be impactful for your kingdom and for your glory. I want to be like, I don't know if I want to go out like Samson did, but he killed more in his death than he did his entire life. In the last years of my life, more fruitful, more productive, and reaching people for the kingdom of God. And let that be your cry. No matter how old you are, where you're at in life, God, I've got so many years. I've got so much time. God, use me for your glory. Because that's why God has you here. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.